Thank you for today. In the midst of all of the struggle and joys that we experience um, and have been experiencing, I just want to thank you for today. I want to thank you for the gorgeous sky and the beautiful mountains. I want to thank you for all these people that you have um, given me as friends. I want to thank you um, for your deep love that you've poured out on us through your Son. And Jesus, as we come here tonight, we would like to ask you what you're doing. Show us what you're doing. Help us, as a community, look to see what you're doing and join you. Make it obvious to us. We're dumb. We need help. We need you to be obvious. And Holy Spirit, we ask tonight that um, as we wrestle with Scripture and as we wrestle with the Apostles' Creed, that you would give us courage to believe what's true, and that you would give us courage to push aside the things that aren't. That as we bump up against each other in community, and as we say the wrong and the right things, and as we speak out of turn and interrupt, that you um, would give us the courage to stay present, to listen for your voice, um, and to be encouraged and challenged and convicted, and to be more and more like you, Jesus. We ask that, Spirit, you would do that in us. And we ask all that in your name, Jesus. Amen. Tonight, guys, we are in the Apostles' Creed. We are in a 13-week series on the Apostles' Creed. Um, and as we've talked about the Creed, the reason that we're going over it is because it's our statement of belief here at the village. And there's a couple reasons why we state it every other week. Um, the first reason is that it's been stated by people who follow Jesus for about the last 1,800 years. It is part of being a follower of Jesus to say the Apostles' Creed. It is a statement of who we are and what we believe. But in particular to the village, as I introduced a couple weeks ago, the reason that we say the Apostles' Creed is that it's kind of like the stretching exercise of our faith. That the Creed itself, in its statements, does a couple things. Number one, as we say it, it reorients us. It brings us back to what's important. It connects us to God and tells us that we're part of his story and not part of our story, that ours fits into his. The second thing is it really simplifies it. I don't remember how many words it is. It's something like 110 or something. I don't know. It's not a lot of words, and yet it encapsulates really the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and who we are following. And it clarifies things. The other thing it does is it connects us to people. And so as we say it, we're saying it next to each other. So together we're saying, I believe. Right? Remember when we talked about belief, the best example for me in thinking about belief is about, it's kind of thinking about the swimming pool. When you say, I believe, as a follower of Jesus, you know, in, in the Father Almighty, make, uh, creator of heaven and earth, when you're saying that, you're not standing around the swimming pool saying, I think swimming is good, I believe it's good. You're, you're in the pool saying, I love swimming. So when you say, I believe, you're immersed with all of these people in the, in the heart belief in Jesus and in, in what the creed has to say. But not only that, it connects us to all the people today who are saying the Apostles' Creed and to all the people who have been saying the Apostles' Creed for the last 1,800 years. It says we're connected to something bigger than a few people sitting on some couches. 
proclaiming what we believe. Like, we're connected to a bigger community. One that stretches over time. And last, it convicts. Right? As an exercise, it convicts us because it makes statements about things that we believe that we might have to wrestle with. It also says that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. And so it means that, that there are parts of the creed that just kind of stir us up and, and we have to wrestle with them. Okay? So these are kind of the things that it does. And the last one I have on there that I talked about that's really important is that the creed actually prevents us from drifting. The reason that we say it every other week is it reorients us and says, here's where we're going to connect in. And we live in a world where we have to deal with Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders, Mrs. Clinton, the Kardashians. I could go on and on and on about the talking heads who create chaos, and that does not include your neighbor, right? And all the other people who create chaos and anxiety. And so it's easy to lose track of what's important. And so when we come every other week to the village, when we say the Lord's Prayer every other week, and then we say the Apostles' Creed, and these are things that keep us from drifting away from what is important. Now, last week Corey covered the first part of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And he made some amazing points, and one of the ones that I really liked was that he basically said, there's a problem because when you say that God is your Father, that's difficult for a lot of us because even though you had good fathers or bad fathers, like we're all over the spectrum, but nobody had a father who wasn't broken. And so the projection that's given to us of what a father is isn't completely almighty or perfect. And so it's distorted. And so I love that he went to the Jewish Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, the first part of it, and he read it and it said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Which is a good statement about God being one up and against all the gods around the Israelites. But he said as he looked at this, he noticed that nowhere around in the text did it say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he's also Corey's dad. And he's Eric's dad. Like, there was nowhere anything around there that had any indication that the God was your actual human father. That God as father was separate. And he was almighty, and he was creator of heaven and earth. And so tonight, we're going to hit the second part of this statement. And in Jesus Christ, his only son our Lord. That's what we're going to cover. Well, my wife, who's very sick because she has this virus thing that's going around that never leaves you, it only stays on you forever. Um, it's kind of almost like the Holy Spirit, from what I hear. But anyway, she said, oh wow, you could preach for years on that one sentence. And I said, yes, and I'm going to do it all in one day, in a half hour. Um, this is a big statement. So I'm just going to pick it apart a little bit and talk about why we say it. And then the creed itself adds to it. But you notice that there are four things in here. And the first thing that it says that we believe in is that we believe in Jesus. Okay? We believe in Jesus. Now I have up there Luke chapter 1, verse 29. The story behind this verse that I'm about to read to you is that the angel comes to Mary, the mother of Jesus, 
before she's that mother, and says, you know, greetings, you found favor in God. And then this verse takes place in verse 29. It says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. And you are to call him Jesus. Right? You're to call him Jesus. Now, a lot of you are, in the last couple of years, we've just had a lot of babies. And over the last 14 years at the village, we've had lots of children. Because when the church started, there were like three. And now there's like almost 50 under the age of 16. So somehow, either from outside or inside, we've created a lot of children. And so I've been part of a lot of naming experiences. And all of you have, you know, some of you have chosen very normal, run-of-the-mill names, good names. Others of you have been very creative. But a lot of times you hear preachers say, you know, in the ancient times, names meant something. But now they don't mean anything. Well, I don't believe that, actually. Now, I have noticed that the way Americans deal with names is that the first name, parents are like, okay, so how bullied is our child going to get? Like, that is the, the first name. Is very, it's very important that it only has a certain level of bullying, right? You're not going to, you do not want to give your child a name where school is terrible. So there's that. That is one of the things. So part of the meaning for Americans is the first name can't be a bullying name. The second name is always what seems to be the one that has all the meaning. It's usually grandma's name, or the guy who saved your brother out of the ocean, you get his name. Like We have all these, the middle name's the important name in the sense of has meaning, has story, has narrative. Right? Now, Jesus' name has meaning, but here's the thing, is we think that because Jesus has become so famous and he's God, that he was the only one named Jesus. Only everybody was named Jesus. There were a lot of Jesuses when he got the name Jesus. So when we say, I believe in Jesus, yes, it has meaning, but it's not necessarily at the root of what, I mean, it's connected to Joshua. But that's not really what's important in the creed. What's important is that when you say, I believe in Jesus, you're actually saying, I believe in a human. A human who had a name in time and space. I think that's very important because a lot of times what you and I believe is that Jesus is his first name and Christ is his second name, right? But Jesus, when you say, I believe in Jesus, you're saying, I believe in a human being in a time, that, that was in a time period that showed up somewhere. He's not just some pretend thing. In fact, when you say, I believe in Jesus, you need to realize that there is more evidence for Jesus existing 2,000 years ago than there is for George Washington existing. In fact, you have to have about the same amount of faith to believe in George Washington as you do to believe that Jesus at least existed. Okay, so you're saying that there is this human that you believe in. Right? He was there. His name was Jesus. It's very important because you're giving God, you're giving Jesus his name. You're saying Jesus. Okay, So, First thing you say is, I believe in Jesus. And then you add this thing called Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ. Now, we don't use Christ a lot. In fact, it's a Christian thing, really. 
But what it means is king. And a lot of translators who've translated the Bible in modern and more modern have gotten rid of Christ and put in king. N.T. Wright, if you look at his New Testament translation, he got rid of Christ and he put in king because we understand it a little bit better. That when we're saying, I believe in Jesus Christ, we're saying, I believe in King Jesus. Now, the important thing is that this word is where we get out of the Old Testament, Messiah. So Christ and Messiah, anointed, they're all the same thing. Okay. But it's even more important, when you say you believe in Jesus Christ, I want to take you to Matthew 16, 13, because you're saying it with somebody. You're making this proclamation with somebody. So we're going to go to Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to look at verse 13 and following. And we're going to look at a little story. Where Jesus asks his disciples a question. Chapter 16, starting in verse 13, it says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? Now I want to stop there. People called... The Son of Man was a word that was used a lot, but by the time that Jesus came around, it really meant Superman. And in fact, how many have seen Batman and Superman versus Superman? There's actually a little reference to this in some of the news clips that go, that Superman is actually the Son of Man. Like this idea. So when Jesus is saying, who do, you, who, who do people say the Son of Man is? He's saying, who do people say the Superman is? Like me. He's referring to, like, what, who is this? What do they say? And they replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah. Or one of the prophets. Now these are all people in the Old Testament who are anointed for something. Verse 15. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. So there's some interesting things going on in this particular region that it seems like Jesus is really smart and awesome about. And that is that where he's asking this question is right next to the temple to Pan. And there's a cave where it's supposed to be the gate to Hades. And Cicero, uh, uh, I always, I need to read this. Man, I'm not going to read it anyway. Caesarea Philippi, thank you. That region is sort of the outside of Rome, the crown of Caesar. So he's saying, who do you say I am to his apostles? On one hand, we're in this region where you have Caesar, who says he's a god. And on the other, you have the temples to Pan and the temples to Baal, where we get pantheism for, you know, multiple gods. So he's saying to them in this place where all these other gods are, or represented, who do you say I am? And, he sa- and Peter stands up and says, you are Christ, you are the Son of God. What he's saying is, you're it. Next to Pan, next to Caesar, next to Baal. You are God. They are not God. You are the King. Okay? So when you and I stand or sit, as we do it here, and say, I believe in Jesus Christ, 
You are standing with Peter. I want you to have that in your head. You're standing with Peter making the same statement to Jesus about what you believe. But you're saying it to your culture. So you're saying it to consumerism. You're saying it to what's offered on your TV screen. You're saying it to your wife. You're saying it to money. You're saying, we can go on and on about the things, the gods of our culture. When we say we believe in Jesus Christ, we are saying that nothing else rules us. There are no other gods. Only Jesus is king. And we're saying it with the Apostle Peter. I just want, the next time you say the Apostles' Creed, I want you to, to say, oh, I'm standing with Peter right now. I'm there in the dirt next to Pan, the temples, and I'm saying, it's you, Jesus. You are king. I want you to just feel that. But you're also saying it against your culture. We are making a statement against the gods of our culture together. Now, the second part of this is that, and it's the proclamation of Peter, is that we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son. Now, God's only Son means that there's kind of a relationship. So as we state the creed, we bump into something called the Trinity. Right? And there's a problem with the Trinity. And when we read the Apostles' Creed, it says, I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus, His Son, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. Three God, three persons, and yet we just stated the Shema, one God. Right? So that's how we state the Trinity. One God, three persons. But in my reality, if there's more than one person, then there's more than one person. Right? I have not met any of you who have three persons. Like where I get to meet the other Scott. You, you know, none of you have three of you. Right? So in our reality, there is only one. Right? One person equals one person. But in God's reality, one God, three persons, works in his reality. So when we have the creed, what happens is our reality bumps into God's reality, which is two different dimensions. And so as we talk about there being God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, we're just describing what we experience. We're not trying to explain it. We're simply saying this is the way we experience it. This is how it is to us who are in two dimensions engaging with God who is in even in multiple dimensions. We've come into that. And so we're describing that. Okay? But when we say that we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, we're talking about a relationship. Son and father. And I love the way John describes this in 1 John 4, 7. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. When you say that you believe in King Jesus and his, the God the Father's only Son, you are saying you believe in love. That you believe that you have had love revealed to you. Right? That God has laid out 
love for you. This is why I love the Apostles' Creed, because when you say, I believe in Jesus, you're saying, he, he was in time, and he has a name, and I can speak it. When you say, I believe in Jesus, Christ, he's king, and he's king up against everything else. When you say, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, you're saying, I believe in love, and it's revelation that's personal, it has a name. Okay? And so the last part, and the hardest part of this statement, and it's the first part of the Apostles' Creed, where you and I get put into it. So I believe in Jesus Christ and God's only Son, our Lord. Our Lord. That means all of a sudden you have been placed into the creed. You are saying that something else besides you is Lord. I want to read to you what Paul has to say about this in Acts 17 really quickly. If you don't know the story of Acts 17, Paul shows up in Athens and as usual starts debating and arguing with everybody and finds himself on Mars Hill with all of the philosophers and judges of of good ideas and bad ideas. And Paul, using the philosopher's poems and about Zeus and other things and knowing and understanding their history, begins to talk to them. And in verse 29, he says this, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When you and I say that Jesus Christ is our Lord, we are entering into an act of repentance. I don't know if you noticed what Paul says here, which is a little strange, because when we invite people to follow Jesus, a lot of times that's what we do. We invite people to follow Jesus, right? But Paul doesn't say that. He says that God commands you to repent. He overlooked the fact that you had fashioned gods beforehand. But now that Jesus is revealed, this isn't the, maybe you could embrace Jesus. No, it is a command that you repent. So when we say, I, that, that Jesus is our Lord, we are obeying a command. We are obeying a command, and we are saying that we accept the judgment of of Jesus over us. Now, here's how repentance works, because when you are saying that Jesus is our Lord or your Lord, you're saying you're entering in a lifestyle of repentance, and the first step to repentance is confession. The first step is confession. So it is really good to confess those gods that you have fashioned, right? That we live, if, you're, if Jesus is your Lord, you are going to follow a pattern of Confession. So you are going to say things like, yes, to fill up the emptiness inside of my life, I eat too much ice cream. Yes, I run after 
pornographic images because it fills me up. I have fashioned that. I run after making my wife happy. I run after having a big bank account. I run after holding on tightly to my money and managing my budget. I love my video games because they, they help distract me. Confession is, I am mean because I don't want anyone to get to know me. Like conf- That's great. That's what confession is. It is just saying what's real. Okay? That's the first part of repentance. And a lot of times, we think that's the only part of repentance. But if Jesus is Lord, then repentance has a second part. Repentance has a turning away from. And it's not a request. You see, when Jesus, when you declare Jesus your Lord, there's not a request to repent. There is a command to repent. And that is not just to name your idols, but it is to walk away from your idols. It is to, and it's all about relationship. Right? Scripture is very clear, and the world's very clear, that you can't worship two things. I cannot worship my daughter and my wife. Because eventually there's going to be a disagreement and I have to choose one of them to make happy. Right? I, have to have, I can only have relationship with one of them. And the reason that God commands us to repent is because he wants to be in relationship with us. And so there has to be a turning around and a facing God instead of facing the things that you long for and want to feel, and that you take illicitly. Right? And, surround, and when we talk about repentance, what we're talking about is what do you worship? What do you organize your life around? And the best way for you to know what kind of false gods you have fashioned are, and I say this all the time, is if I ask for it from you and you get a little upset about it, then your worship is misplaced and it is a foreign god in your life. If you can't just let go of it, but I say, hey, I'm going to take your TV, and you're like, fine, I didn't need it anyway. Right? Hey, like, here's a hard one, but hey, I'm going to take your spouse. Not, hey, I didn't need her anyway. But, but no, that's sad, but if you, you want her, take her. Like, she's yours. She's not, like, I, she does not make me who I am. You do. Right? Yes, talking to God. Very good clarification. So, when you, I mean, this is a very, like, you need to think about when you say the Apostles' Creed what you're saying. You're saying, I have decided with all these people to enter in a lifestyle of repentance, which is to confess my gods and to walk away from them into relationship with God. To obey the command to repent. Do you see how, as you say the Apostles' Creed, it can reorient you? And how it can simplify things? And how it can connect you to people? I love this statement. Let's see if I actually put it up here. That we're talking about. That I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. Like the, I love this statement. But I think the best way for me to really illustrate it and kind of in closing things up um, is to tell you a story because 
I really want you to know what you're saying when you say this. I want you to know the person that you're saying it to. So let me tell you a story. It comes out of John chapter 20. You see, Jesus had died, and he'd been put in a tomb. And after the third day, Mary Magdalene went to go kind of fix things up with him. You know, put some more spices and herbs on him. And when she got to the tomb, the stone was rolled away, and there was no Jesus in the tomb. And she goes running back to the two most important people in Jesus' life, probably, in his, out of his disciples. John and Peter. Now John is telling the story in the Gospel of John, and he calls himself the one that Jesus loved. Which to me, every time I read it, because it's in the Gospels over and over in John, he says that he never says that, his, that it's John that he's talking about. He just says the other disciple, the one that Jesus loves. You know, this does not work out in families. If, if I say, well, I'm the son that my parents love, to everybody else, that's not, that's not going to work out. We know how that worked out for Joseph, basically, if you know Joseph's story. Right? We, we, it's not a good thing to say, and yet John says it. He says, the other disciple, the one that Jesus loves. And so Mary comes to them and says, the tomb is empty, and they start running. Right? And I was reading this story to the kids on Easter, and what I told them, it's like Elliot, my son, who's like maybe 77 pounds, and Rod, who we won't say how you know, much he weighs, but you can imagine we've got like six foot eight, big guy, little tiny quick guy. And they are running. Right? And so the little tiny guy runs right by Peter, and Peter's like, dum, dum, dum. and you know, and he's, they, get to the, they get to the tomb, and the little disciple, John, the one that Jesus loved, he looks in, he doesn't go in, and Peter just like, boom, flies in there, he's looking around to the lady D, sees that it's empty. Right? And then John steps in, or the other disciple steps into the tomb, and it says that he believed. And then in little parentheses it says that they didn't really know yet why all the reasons why Jesus had to raise from the dead. Now, I, I want to say that if one of you became some sort of Messiah and we all decided to follow you and you did a whole bunch of great things and then things went really bad after you started buying homes and making us all live there and, um, and they arrested you and we all ran away and, and you got beaten and then they killed you and then I heard that you had raised from the dead I would not run to your tomb. Like if I found out that your grave was empty, that somebody said, hey, we went to the grave, it's been dug up, it's opened, and his clothes that he was wearing were nice and folded up. I would go hide because I would know I was part of a very bad B-whore movie and that you were coming to get me, right? You were going to kill me. But I guess the story, like it, it hit me recently, like why is John, and in particular Peter, who denied that he even knew Jesus to Jesus' face, why is he running to the tomb? Why is he running to the tomb? It doesn't make any sense to me. And then I started realizing why Jesus, or why John calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. It's not because he's being arrogant. He realizes something. That the 
Jesus that we are making a statement about, the Christ that we are making a statement about, the Son of God that we're making a statement about, the Our Lord that we're making a statement about, is one who when we deny Him, when we run away from Him, when we abandon Him, we don't have to run away. In fact, we run to Him. Because He's love. That He is the very expression of the love of God revealed to us. And Peter, and in particular John, knew that. And so they ran. I don't think they were running because they thought maybe, you know, someone stole Jesus' body. They were hoping that they could see him face to face and have some form of healing, have some form of restoration, have some form of love, of, of restoring all that had happened. And that longing is what propelled them to run to that tomb. So I offer that to you, and I want you to think about that this week. And every time that you stand up and say, I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, our Lord. That's what I want you to hold on to tonight. I actually have five minutes. Does anybody want to ask any questions or comment on this line of the Apostles' Creed or... Have any thoughts about it or questions to me? Want to take it some other direction? In the back. So you said, though we deny him, though we run away, we return or we are actually running back to him? Or are those, are those two things? Um, I think what I'm saying is that that the, the very essence of who Jesus is compels us to run to him. Like, that there isn't a condemnation. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yes. That, that, at least for those apostles, they were compelled by it, even in this place where they had denied him and run away and hid. Anybody else? Anybody else? I would say that repentance is like an onion and that it's layered. And so the first time you peel it off, you confess and you turn and you take that big chunk off. But then there's another layer and another layer and another layer. And I think if you look, 
if you really are living a life of repentance and you look at the things that you've been caught in, you'll realize that they have slowly gotten smaller and that the revelation of who Jesus is and his love for you has gotten bigger. Would that ring true with you at any level? Well, I think the creed's the creedal statement for you is to you go back to this and say, well, I believe in Jesus and I believe in he's my king and that he loves me and that I'm going to continue to follow through as him being my Lord and just return yourself to that. Go ahead. really good. Jesus' love precedes my repentance. It doesn't follow it. Emily, did you want to say something? No? Did any, I, yes, sir. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, giving us the creed. And thank you for this community and their wisdom and their questions. I just ask tonight that as we respond to your word, that you would be gracious to us.